If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 13. We're going to work with the whole chapter, which is all one narrative account. And we're, we're working with the question this morning, what does it look like or what does it mean to rest or trust? I'm going to use those words sort of interchangeably, to, to rest in the promises of God. That sentiment is something that sounds great as like a sermon application. Well, just, just go rest in the promises of God. I'm pretty sure I've used that as a sermon application before, but the logical question is, what does that even mean? Like, okay, rest in the promises of God, trust in the promises of God, but what, how, what am I supposed to do with that? How does that actually work? We want to drill down into that this morning and we're going to do so in this next account in Abram's life. So Genesis 12, 1 to 3, he receives these promises from God. He leaves everything that would give him security and, and the, the promise of like wealth and comfort. He leaves all of that behind, goes to this land that the Lord promises to give him. A food shortage sends him to Egypt. That's the second half of chapter 12 that we looked at last week. Now he's going to go back up to Canaan. And if you were here last week or you listened on the podcast, you're probably, you might be thinking to yourself, it would be logical to think to yourself, how are we going to see something about resting or trusting in the promises of God out of this guy? Because last week he did literally the exact opposite of that. He took things into his own hands instead of trusting that God would fulfill his promises. Abram tried to like make that happen for himself. Instead of believing that God would be faithful to his side of a covenant agreement, Abram tried to like give God a boost and help his own cause down there in Egypt. Like in trying to sort of uh, like self-preserve there, he made a mess out of a situation for he and his entire family. This week, we're gonna see something very, very different. We're also gonna see the way all of this is sort of stacking up for us. God makes all of these promises to Abram. Abram immediately, like it appears, starts to walk just like in total faithfulness in response to those promises. But then he gets down into Egypt and you get this picture of like, that's ah, a little bit harder to do that than uh, it would seem on the surface at times. And he bungles the whole situation. Now we're going to see the opposite. He is going to trust the Lord and we're gonna see that play itself out We said a few weeks ago, like all of those promises of God for us are fulfilled in Jesus. And the call for us is to walk in response to the fact that in Christ, we have the fulfillment of all these covenant promises. And rather than trying to fulfill God's side of the covenant for him, we can let him do that. And we can just be faithful. Today, we're going to see what it looks like to really try to like rest in what God has fulfilled and the promises that he has accomplished for us in Christ. We're gonna work with the passage in stages today. So we're gonna read a portion, do some of our observing, read another portion, do some observing. So let's pray and then we'll jump into that. God, thank you for this morning and uh, for the chance for us to gather together as a church family to sing about uh, how great you are God, to open your word and see you revealed to us. God, to be in relationship and fellowship with one another. God, I pray that your spirit here among us this morning would open our hearts and minds to what it looks like to deepen our trust in you. God, would you challenge and convict us on the ways that we grasp after things in the world rather than trusting in what you fulfilled for us in Christ. God, would you show us what it is to 
deepen our, our trust and our rest and our abiding in what you've done for us in Christ. God, would you do that for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you've got Genesis 13 open there in front of you, we use the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. That's what we preach out of. If, you're, if you use like a Bible app and you're trying to find what it is that we use, CSB is our translation that we preach from. If you've got a hard copy of that or you've got it on digital copy there in front of you, if you just look at Genesis 13, it's likely that it fits on one page for you. It could be just a simple swipe or two. In the CSB, there are three parenthetical statements that are made throughout the passage. If you've got a different translation in front of you, you could have anywhere from zero parenthetical comments all the way up to five, depending on what your translation is. Those parenthetical statements are really helpful for understanding what's happening in this passage, as well as how it connects to some other things that are going to take place in the book of Genesis, as well as in the rest of scripture. And how those parenthetical statements kind of work is that they are essentially... Moses, who's the author and thus the narrator of this account, offering little snippets of like commentary on what's taking place. Why do different translations have different numbers of those parenthetical statements, Tim? Because every group of translators is trying to figure out what's just narrating the action and what is commentary on the action. And different groups of translators have different thoughts about what falls in which category. Those Little comments are going to be very helpful for us in terms of understanding what's happening here. You know, if you read a play, don't watch a play, but you actually read uh, the script of a play, there will be like some comments at different points that are like stage directions and they tell you like, this is spoken to this person or this person now goes over here or the scene has changed. You can kind of think about these narrator comments as like some guidance or direction in terms of what's happening in the account. The other thing to just keep in mind, we were told in Genesis 12, Abram, Lot, Abram's wife, leave Ur, and they travel together. But then at the end of chapter 12 down in Egypt, Lot was never mentioned. Now you're going to notice in Genesis chapter 13, Sarai is never mentioned. They're all traveling together, but what took place in Egypt did not really involve Lot, so he was never talked about. Now what takes place on the edge of Canaan isn't really going to involve Sarai, but she's there. We know that everybody's there because of the way that the passage starts. So here are the first four verses in Genesis chapter 13. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. The order of stuff listed in verse one is important or at least illustrative in some capacity. Abram put his life in danger in Egypt despite trying to save his life. And we're told, okay, he's okay. His wife who got put in a compromising situation, she's there. They've got all the stuff, which ended up being like, ill-gotten down there in Egypt, but they've been made wealthy thanks to what it is that Pharaoh gave to Abram. And Lot is there, and they're going up from Egypt to the Negev. So you know that Lot was in Egypt. It's not like Abram went down and Lot stayed. They all went together, and now the whole company 
is headed back. And this newly wealthy crew of people leaves Egypt and they retrace the steps that we were told in Genesis 12 that got them there. In Genesis 12, Abram leaves Ur of the Chaldeans. He's traveling through. He ends up in, at Shechem. We're not going to see that city. But then Ai and Bethel to the Negev down to Egypt. Now he reverses course from Egypt in stages to the Negev, back to Bethel, to the altar that was built between Bethel and Ai. The route they took down, they now take back out. And at the place where the altar is there between Bethel and Ai, we're told that Abram calls on the name of the Lord or he worships there. But then there's a problem. Verses five through seven. Now Lot who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together, and there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. Notice the difference in the description between Lot's stuff and Abram's stuff. Verse 2, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Verse 5, Lot also had flocks, herds, and tents. There's supposed to be a little bit of differentiation there. Abram is very wealthy because of what happened in Egypt. Lot has some stuff too. And we're told that regardless of like who has more or what exactly uh, the dynamic is there, there's tension and a quarrel that arises, the crux of which is they both got flocks and there must not be enough like fertile grassland for both sets of flocks to be able to graze and to have space. That's evidenced by the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot are like fighting over who gets to graze when and where. And the CSB gives a particular parenthetical statement here that is pretty helpful. It puts in parentheses, at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, it would make sense to think to yourself, if this land here in Canaan is the promised land, the land that all of Israel is eventually going to move into to live, how is it that it can't support two families when later it's going to support 12 tribes. In fact, that would be the question that an Israelite out in the Sinai wilderness waiting to go into the promised land would ask when they read this account. Wait a minute, you're telling me this land flowing with milk and honey that we're going to go in to possess. Exodus tells us there are 600,000 men at that time, plus all of their families and all of their stuff. You're telling me it's so small, two families can't live there? How are all of us about to go in there and live? To which Moses says, bear in mind, other people groups are living in this location. And so whatever space Lot and Abram were able to carve out there among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, Perizzites, it was not big enough for them. In fact, the recurring theme in Exodus, Deuteronomy, even parts of Leviticus and Numbers is going to be the Lord telling Israel, when you get to the land that I've promised you, I will go before you and drive out the nations who live there so that you can inhabit the land. Here's Moses saying, there's people there. Thus, not enough space. There's gonna be plenty of room for us, Israel and all 12 tribes. But there's some people living there currently. The issue is that whatever little chunk of land 
Lot and Abram have found for themselves. It's not sufficient. And so then we get the solution to that, verses 8 through 13. Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zoar, was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. This is sort of the first like high point in the story. Abram offers a solution to the problem. And the solution comes in a pretty unexpected way. Abram, the man of promise, looks at Lot and he says, you pick. Which, which land do you want? You go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. Let's not fight. You select what you want. Bookmark that in your brain because we are most certainly going to come back to it. Lot looks around and he sees how lush the plain near the Jordan River looks. And he makes this selection. In verse 10, notice how it is that Moses describes what that looks like. It's well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden, right? Genesis 1 and 2, the garden is fed by four rivers. Like it would be this incredibly lush, beautiful place. Or then he says, or like the land of Egypt, again, This book given to the Israelites out in the wilderness. They're trying to picture what this land flowing with milk and honey must look like. And he says, remember back in Egypt where everything was like fertilized by the flooded Nile? It's fertile like that. That's what this area near the Jordan River is going to be like. And so Lot looks at that. He says, I'll take that land the fertile land, but not everything is as it appears. The appearance betrays the full reality of the choice. And the verbiage and the parathetical statements about this land that Lot selected sort of gives away that there's a problematic aspect to this. The first piece, even before the parenthetical statements, is Lot journeyed what direction? Eastward. That ought to trigger something in our minds as we've been reading Genesis. What direction in the book of Genesis signifies moving away from the presence of the Lord? East. What direction is Lot choosing to go? East. So at the very least, that should signal in the reader's mind like, ah, it's not really the direction here in Genesis that you would want to be moving. But Moses gives two parenthetical statements here. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. If you've never read the Bible before, you would say to yourself, well, why in the world would the Lord destroy those two cities? And why is that a memorable thing? Then you get down to verse 13 in the second parenthetical statement. The men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Sinning immensely. Remember back in Genesis chapter one as God is creating and at the end of every day, he declares it good. Tov. Tov, 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 Tov. And then he gets to day six and he said it's very good indeed. It's Maod Tov, very good. The description here for the people of Sodom is that they are uh, Maod Hataim. They are exceedingly sinful, very sinful indeed. 
and their sin is against the Lord, which is kind of an interesting statement. Sodom and Gomorrah, they're not populated by Israelite people, right? So Genesis 1 to 11, sort of like general prehistory, starting in Genesis 12, you get the specific covenantal history of God with this people that he chooses for himself. And they're supposed to live in response to his rule and his reign and in obedience to him. And yet in back-to-back accounts, you get subtle reminders that just because God has chosen a specific people, it does not mean that he no longer rules humanity in general. So what does he do with Pharaoh? He inflicts severe plagues against Pharaoh. What is he saying now about Sodom and Gomorrah? Their sin is against the Lord. They might not be the Lord's chosen people, but they are accountable to him nonetheless, as is true today. It's not just that like Christians will be held accountable. It's that all of humanity under the ruling and the reigning of God, will be accountable to him one day. So despite the fact that we're zeroing in on one group of people, we get all these nation reminders. God wants to bring blessing to all the nations, and yet all of humanity will be accountable to him. One application at this point. Our desires cannot always be trusted. You could substitute that to say our urges cannot always be trusted. You could substitute it to say, like, our appetites cannot always be trusted. If you wanted to just do the most direct verbiage right out of our passage, you could say that our eyes cannot always be trusted. This is the third time in Genesis we've seen a very intentional construction of verbiage. Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was good, then took and ate it. And then in their sin, judgment comes. The son's of man saw that the daughters of God were beautiful and took some of them to be their wives. Judgment comes in the flood. Lot sees that the land near Sodom and Gomorrah is lush and then chooses or takes it for himself. And Moses is already tipping his hand that judgment is coming to that area. Just because our eyes or our desires tell us that something is good does not mean that we should reach out and take hold of that thing for ourselves. Our desires can't be trusted. Just because we have an urge for something or we think that the appearance of something is good does not mean that we should just instinctively grab hold of that thing. In the same way that our actions need the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, so too do our desires. In fact, the best way to get our actions to align with obedience to God is to start with submitting our desires and our urges, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Most of the time, what we want to do in in our sanctification processes is just get the sort of practical tips that will help me stop the behaviors. Just... Just tell me what I need to know so that my behaviors stop. And then I will rely on my self-discipline and my self-control to just wrangle the actions into obedience. No, what we actually need is the desire to be sanctified. Because scripture is going to play out over and over again and personal experience will tell you your self-control will be insufficient to handle your actions when desire, when your flesh has given sort of birth to desire, and that has now full born right to the moment of action, your, your self-help strategies probably aren't going to work at that point. We need the gracious intervention of God's sanctifying work to start not at the behavior level, but at the desire 
level. Our desires can't always be trusted. At this point in the story, Lot and Abram set off in different directions. Lot goes to set up his tents by Sodom in the plain of the Jordan. Abram is sort of left standing there and you get the second high point of the story, which is the Lord's intervention. Verse 14, after Lot had separated from him, the Lord spoke to Abram, look from the place where you are, look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron where he built an altar to the Lord. This time, the intervention of the Lord comes in word rather than action. I mentioned back when we started Genesis chapter 12, that in chapters 12 and 13 and 14, you're gonna sort of see the promises that God made in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12 built on so that when the covenant gets sort of like solidified or set into place or kind of ratified, however you wanna think about it, in Genesis chapter 15, Abram has this very clear idea of what it is that God is promising to him. This is the beginning of that. Notice what God says to Abram. Look from where you stand. Look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west. It's very different than Lot looking and taking because what does God say? I will give you. Look and I will give to you rather than see and take for yourself. Look and I will give this land, everything that you can see. I will give your offspring forever. That is as close to the biblical parallel of the Lion King statement, everything the light touches is our kingdom. This is close as you get. Look from where you are, north, south, east, west. I will give all of that to your offspring or your generations forever. The promise isn't just Abram, your son, will inherit this land. It's your offspring, your generations forever. I'm giving all the land that you can see. And about those offspring, I'm gonna make them like the dust of the earth. If you could bend down and count every little dust particle, that's how numerous your offspring will be. So God promised land back in Genesis 12, one to three. Now he's saying it's that land specifically. He promised offspring back in Genesis 12, one to three or a nation. Now he's saying the nation, the people of Abram will be so numerous, you couldn't possibly count them if you wanted to. Try to count the dust. That's what it would be like. And then God has Abram walk back and forth throughout the land. That's a symbol for ownership. When God was moving through the garden with Adam and Eve, that was a reference or an allusion to the fact that he ruled that place. It was his. Now he tells Abram, walk back and forth in the land. It's yours. I'm giving it to you and to your offspring forever. Abram moves into Canaan, sets up his tent, and does what we've seen him do a number of times. He builds an altar to worship the Lord. Let's do a quick comparison contrast between what happened here in Canaan and what happened back in Egypt. In both situations, you had like the event happening in the immediate sort of presence of God's promises. God made the promises, 
and then Abram went to Egypt. So the promises preceded what happened. Now it's Abram does what he does in Canaan and God reiterates or restates the promises. So they come on the backside of what happens. But it's surrounded or bookend. The whole thing is bookended by God saying, Abram, I'm making these promises to you. In both situations, there's a very practical problem. Genesis 12 in Egypt, Abram thinks he's gonna die if someone finds Sarai beautiful and wants to take her as their wife. In Canaan, the land can't support both Lot and Abram. But in both situations, the practical problem is actually a theological problem. Abram can't be a great nation if he's dead in Egypt. And in this case, God promised land and Abram is looking at Lot and saying, go ahead and pick. Take, take what you want and I'll take what's left over. And in both situations, God ends up intervening. In Egypt, God intervenes to preserve his plans and promises. He uh, inflicts Pharaoh's household with severe plagues so that Abram and Sarai are kicked out. And then here in Canaan, God intervenes in word in order to reiterate or to reaffirm those plans and promises. And so in both situations, Abram enacts a plan. In Egypt, that plan is one of self-preservation. Here in Canaan, that plan is one of faith. What's that faith look like? It looks like resting in the promises of God. But what does resting in the promises of God entail? It looks like not having to grasp after the things of the world. Abram's able to say, I don't have to pick first. You pick. Resting in God's promises frees us from grasping at the things of the world. I wanna walk through what I think are like three sort of steps to that. I said my goal is not to just give that sort of uh, main point and then say, go in peace. Like, let's drill into that. What does it actually mean? What does it actually entail? Well, I think the narrative displays for us that resting in the promises of God is an active pursuit. The, The tricky part of the word resting is that it makes it seem like it's passive. Oh, well, if you just do nothing then all of God's promises will be made real to you or you'll live in light of those promises. No, Abram Abram does a thing here. What Abram does in Egypt is very obvious because he has this sort of like crackpot plan where Sarai just say you're my sister and everything will go well for me and they won't kill me on account of you and, and yada, yada, yada. But here he's active as well. There's a problem. He and Lot get together and have a conversation. And rather than Lot or Abram saying, hey, Lot, I'm taking that. He says, I'm gonna let you pick. And whatever it is you pick, I'm gonna go the other way. You go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. You have to imagine that his like flesh or something inside of him would rise up and say, hey, make sure you get yours. Like God promised you land and you can't just give it all away to Lot. So you pick, I'm picking first and you can have what's left over. He doesn't do that. Second, resting in God's promises is a theological pursuit, right? Abram has to know what promises God made. Did God tell me something about land? Did he tell me anything about this particular land? Like what were the promises specifically? And he also has to know something about the God who made the promises. What's he like? Is he trustworthy? Can can I trust that he's gonna bring his promises to pass? Is he powerful enough to make that happen? And what just happened in Egypt? He saw that on display. When every, despite Abram's best attempts, when everything is put in great danger because of the lie that they told, God intervened. 
in order to bring his purposes and his plans and his promises to pass. And so here's Abram in this wildly different fashion enacting a plan that says, rather than me concocting the means by which I get the land that God said he would give me, Lot, you choose, and I trust the promise that God made me and the God who made them that I don't have to grasp after this thing. And then last, resting in God's promises is a supernatural pursuit. You say, where do you get that, Tim? I don't see the Holy Spirit jumping off the page here, doing anything active or being written about. Well, we don't know how much time passes between the incident in Egypt and this. What we do know is that Abram approaches this practical problem wildly differently than he approached the last practical problem. Why? Let's think through it. It wouldn't appear that the harsh consequences of life made it so that Abram really bottomed out. Now he's going to trust the Lord. No, what, what? he came out of the last situation rich, right? Tells a lie, puts everyone in danger, gets all of this stuff from Pharaoh, and then he walks out, he and his wife and all he had and Lot with him. And if you're just being like totally honest about it and you're Abram, you'd be saying, let's run that playbook again. Like, look at how that worked out for us. But he doesn't do that. Something else had to have happened. I think part of what we're seeing here is a narrative picture of what we would call, as followers of Jesus, sanctification, or what you could call in this context, this is a person learning how to trust the Lord. This is a person learning how to rest in the promises that God has made to them. Now, it's not perfect. Abram is going to wrestle with trying to fulfill God's covenant promises for God in other places throughout his life. But at the very same time, we're going to see powerful instances of Abram trusting God and resting in God's promises. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the nature of sanctification. It looks way more like the mamba than it does an escalator. Like it is up and down and all over the place. And you will have, we have days where it's like, ah, temptation was staring me in the face. And you know, whether it was, I, you know, you stopped in prayer, you, the Lord, you felt like the Lord intervened in some sort of way that was miraculous, like you didn't cave to that temptation and into that sin. And then three days later, you're faced with the very same problem and you don't even think twice. You just jump straight into the sin and you're like, what? I'm the same person. What just happened here? Well, that is your flesh and the spirit wrestling against one another and that will be the reality of your life until the day you go to glory. Now, prayerfully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you gain some traction in victory over your sins as your life goes on, but the wrestling will never be gone. You're seeing that play itself out in Abram. You're gonna see that play out in Abram throughout the rest of his portion of Genesis, and then you're gonna see it in every single person that comes after him until Jesus Christ enters the picture where he is always victorious over sin. Resting in God's promises. Like if we were to put all three of those things together into kind of one statement, say that resting in God's promises is an active pursuit built on the particular character of God and driven by the power of God's spirit. It's not a passive thing, we're active. But it's built on the particular of who God is and what he's promised and the fulfillment of those things for us in Jesus. And it's driven by the power of God's spirit. It's supernatural. And it's in that reality that we get freedom from grasping at the things 
of the world. Okay, now we could say, go apply that. Peace and blessings. But I, I want to be like really practical about it. What does this actually look like as it intersects with a real thing in people's lives? And so I rewrote the end of this sermon like five times trying to find the right thing that felt like, you know, we could use an example that would be broadly applicable and, and meaningful for people. And yet at the same time, the illustration or the example that I'm going to use in the application here is, is not the point. The point is, what do we do with this actually in our daily like lived out reality? And so you could apply any number of graspings at things of the world to the same process. I'm just going to use one that I think is concrete enough and broadly applicable enough that we can all understand it. And that thing is pornography. Why am I picking that particular thing? You're like, Tim, this passage is not about that. I'm, I'm selecting pornography because, like I said, it's broadly applicable. The most recent data says that 64% of men in the church struggle with regular pornography use. And before you like nudge your spouse or look at your teenage son, the same data says that 40 to 45% of women in the church struggle with regular pornography use. Now, we're gonna work our way through this, but I think what we're doing in that is we're trying to grab hold of something that God has promised us and fulfilled for us in Christ, and the grasping is a shortcut to try to get to that. Let me explain. What is the desire that ought not to be trusted underneath pornography use? It's lust, right? That, that's the, the thing that creeps up inside of us. And so right at that point, we start to play mental games with ourselves. Well, my sexual desires are God-given. Fact, that is true. But those desires have been marred by the pervasive presence of sin within humanity. So we ought not to just trust every urge that we have. Okay, well, I'm trying my best to either wait until I'm married or to fulfill those urges only within the confines of my marriage. So pause, that's a good thing. That's the right thing. But like we already said, simple willpower typically is not going to be the thing that helps us in the moment of action. We need to address the urge. When it comes to the simple actions, we do all sorts of rationalizing. Well, no one is harmed by this. False. Just do even a bare minimum amount of research on human trafficking and you will find that even with like, like one person's pornography usage, there are very real human beings victimized by the industry. Okay, the other rationalizing we do is like watching pornography is better than committing adultery. Okay, false. Why do I say false? If you're listening on the podcast, I'm using air quotes, but the lesser of two sins is still a sin. So it's not like, well, I, I chose the better, air quotes, the better sin. No, that's not the case. Plus, Jesus redefines adultery for us in his life and in his ministry. He says, if you even lust after another, you've committed adultery with them. And so it's helpful at this point to consider what is the actual desire? What is the actual thing I'm trying to achieve in my life and lust becomes the shortcut to that thing? Well, the answer to that is intimacy. 
We want to know and be known. That is a God-given desire. Why is that a God-given desire? Well, you're made in his image and he exists in perfect fellowship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, where there is nothing to block the absolute intimacy of that relationship. But everything on our end is marred by sin. So we long to know and to be known. And yet, even the best of our relationships is marred by the presence of sin. The most perfect marriages, where there's, there's no pornography use, there's, there's you know, no like emotional entanglements with other people, they're just really healthy, beautiful marriage. Sin makes intimacy hard in those marriages. How do I know? Every time you want to hide something from your spouse, remind yourself, sin makes intimacy hard. Every time you're interacting with your spouse and there's something about them that you're like, I don't really care. Why are they telling me this? Sin makes intimacy hard. Every time you get in an argument and you can't come to middle ground, sin makes intimacy hard. And we only think about intimacy in terms of the physical side. But the biblical picture is that intimacy is about knowing and being known. And what pornography offers us is the see it and take it version of that. And it is like drinking gasoline when what you need is water. Yep, you put a liquid into your body, but it's poison. And it will ultimately harm you, not get you to the place that you thought you were getting to. Okay, so if, if that's the thing, intimacy, well, what has God promised me about that? If I'm a follower of Jesus, like what can I absolutely hang my hat on in this realm? You're fully known. Like completely. I mean, just call, call to mind some of the popular passages of scripture. He knows and numbers the hairs on your head. He's marked out every single one of your days before you lived a single one of them. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. He saw you in your mother's womb before you had taken your very first breath. He sees the depths of your heart, not just the facade of your actions. And what, that's all good news in the Bible. Like the Genesis 3 picture of the reality of sin is that that would be reason for shame for us. Like we would need to hide from God. The Bible presents all that as good news. Why? Because he loves you. Not, not just because he has to, despite the reality of sin, but he loves you because you're made in his image. And he set his unique affection upon you. And so brother or sister in Christ, what do you have? Perfect intimacy. You have that. You are known fully loved fully. And in case it's hard to like wrap our minds around that, what's true about God in this regard? Well, the son came to the earth and experienced every single thing that we do, which means he knows the pain of relationships marred by the presence of sin. He's gonna call 12 guys to follow him around, be very close to his life, see everything that he does. And one of those guys is going to betray him to his very death. He knows the pain of that. He knows the ache of wanting to know and be known. He steps out of heaven, you know, perfect fellowship within the Trinity into a world that's broken and stained at every level by the presence of sin. But he also knows the certainty and the joy of abiding in relationship with the Father. And about this whole thing, you might be sitting there saying to yourself, well, what about the physical pieces of this whole thing, Tim? Yeah, Jesus never had that either. Which tells us that 
marriage and sex must not be core to what it means to live a flourishing life in the world that God created. Our sexuality is a piece of who we are, but not a central core piece of our humanity that we hang our identity on. If that were the case, then Jesus wasn't fully human, but he's the most full human being who lived the most flourishing human life of anyone that's ever stepped foot on the face of the planet. Scripture tells us that in Jesus, we have a friend that's closer than a brother. Paints this picture of a relationship with Jesus that's the most intimate relationship you can have. Again, intimacy is the thing that you want. Pornography and lust is the shortcut to try to get it, but it's poison. You want something deeper that you have in Jesus. You have that with him. You are known and fully loved. He sees you with greater clarity than any other human being on this earth and he came to earth, experienced all that you experienced and then he went to the cross in your place. And we need supernatural help to navigate every piece of that. Every piece of it. We need the urge to be sanctified. We need the desire to be sanctified. And the desire gets sanctified as the Holy Spirit reminds us of the truth of God's promises to us in this realm. The urge gets sanctified by the Holy Spirit reminding us of the truth of God's character and what he's done for us in Christ in this realm. And look, I get it. You're sitting there thinking, because I'm standing here thinking it. Yeah, in the moment, Tim, I'm not working through that little logic puzzle in my head. Yeah, because what do we already say? We need the desire sanctified. Like trying to, trying to pause in the, the moment right before the action is not the right place to try to like go back over here and like snag the promises of God and try to like drag them over. We need that all the time. We need the Holy Spirit and the gracious work of God doing that work in our hearts all the time. Why? So that we walk in the promises, rest in the promises, trust in the promises. Not like I've got them and I'll put them into play when I think I need them. No. What is a follower of Jesus? A follower of Jesus is someone who says, those are the promises and I have them in Christ and I'm living all of life in light of them. And we need supernatural help in order to make that happen. What's the end result of that? We can let go of the things of the world. We don't have to grasp after them. We don't need to search for gasoline because we've got water and we can be satisfied. Resting in God's promises frees us from grasping at the things of the world. Again, when you get to Brian, you guys can come up. When you, when you get to lunch or whatever's coming next and you think to yourself, wow, the sermon was about pornography. No, it wasn't. The sermon was about how it is that we live out of, rest in, trust in, walk in the promises of God so that we don't have to grasp after the things of the world. So insert whatever grasping you do into the place of pornography and do all of that work and the answer will always come out. Jesus has given you that thing and what you're grasping after has neither the intent nor the power to actually fulfill what it is that your urges tell you you can achieve by sin. Jesus has given you that thing and we walk in that and that's where joy and peace and fullness of life is ultimately found. Amen.
Amen. I want to take a moment and pray for us very specifically for the Holy Spirit to do that work inside of us, and then we'll close in worship. God, thank you for your son. Thank you that in him, every single one of your promises to us in scripture has been granted unto us. God, thank you that your Holy Spirit is present and and working, is active inside of us so that even though we live in this tension of like the promises are fulfilled and granted to us and yet we don't have them in full until the other side of glory, God, we have Jesus in the here and now. We've got the Holy Spirit empowering us in the here and now and we can just stop grasping after the things of the world and walk in the promises of God. Oh, would your spirit do that work inside of us. God, would your spirit do that work inside of me, I pray, God. Sanctify us at the level of our desires. Help us to see what it is that we long for and that we, we have urges or appetites for, God, and, and help us to do that backward progress so that we can see what it really is that we're grasping for and how it is that we have that thing fully and completely and most satisfyingly in Jesus. And then God, would your spirit just empower us to let go of the other stuff? God, would you do that work in us and through us for your glory, for our good? God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand up, let's sing.